and welcome to the BMJ Innovations podcast. I'm Dr. Helen Serrana, one of the associate editors at BMJ Innovations, and I'll be your host. We hope you'll subscribe, like and review the podcast wherever you are listening to it and share on your own networks because we'd really like as many people to hear it as possible. BMJ Innovations is grateful to WISH, the World Innovation Summit for Health, for making this podcast possible. In this first series, we're bringing you interviews with some of the world's top leaders in innovation. We have interviews from the UK, Kenya, Vietnam and the USA. Each of the leaders I spoke to has their own unique experience and we talk about the lessons that we can all learn from their journeys. This first interview is with Professor Tony Young, OBE, the National Clinical Lead for Innovation at NHS England and NHS Improvement. And he talks about what inspired him to get involved in innovation and why his true passion for improving health is to keep the best entrepreneurs in the NHS. Listen out for some of his comments on the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Programme, which is opening for applications right now as we publish this podcast in October 2021. He's a man with a lot of hats, so I started by asking Tony to tell me some of his key roles and responsibilities. I'm Tony Young. I'm a consultant urological surgeon at Southend Hospital, part of the Mid and South Essex group. And in that um, group, I'm also the Associate Medical Director responsible for innovation and transformation of our system. I'm the Chair and Director of Medical Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Anglia Ruskin University. And I'm the National Clinical Lead for Innovation at NHS England and NHS Improvement. Fantastic. What a lot of hats. It's quite fun, though. Yeah, I can imagine. Can we go back to the start of your career and just have a quick chat about first why you applied for medicine, why you went to medical school, and then perhaps your research that you did right at the beginning of your career and what were the motivations for for those things? I think one of the reasons I chose medicine is partly the values I was kind of taught as I was growing up. I think there are a number of key things that happen to you throughout your childhood that leave an impact on you. And both my parents worked for charities most of my life, actually. And therefore, social value, your community, injustice and inequality were really important things. And I thought medicine was a way, or I felt, I should say, that medicine was a way of me being true to those values that I had. I didn't think of it like this at the time. It just felt right. Now I look back on it and go, I can see why I kind of chose that. But I also had this thing around invention, innovation, creativity. I recall at the age of five or six, I designed a humane mousetrap. I drilled, took my father's drill and drilled through one of my toy boxes and made this little thing that could capture the mouse so I could release it at the end of the garden. And then I invented an artificial urinary sphincter as a 22-year-old, which you might say is odd, but my grandmother had end-stage dementia and just seeing her incontinent, and I thought as a kind of 12 or 13-year-old boy, and this is your granny, and you kind of go, we must be able to do something about that. So I came up with something completely novel in my design and it ended up getting incorporated into something that went on to become one of the most popular artificial urinary sphincters, the concept of this chamber mechanism I designed. And then as a houseman, I'm not quite sure initially how, but anyway, I invented a ray gun. And I went to the general who was the head of the British Army Medical Corps I did happen to know him, I should say. And I said, excuse me, so I think I've invented a rate gun and this is how it works. And he looked at me and he said, 
I think you might be right. So he sent me to Porton Down, our, the chemical and biological defence establishment that we have there. And I met the head scientist and he looked at it and he said, we'll fund a PhD in neuroscience for you at UCL. So we converted a magnetic missile launching system from the kit they have at Porton Down and worked with the scientists there. So I kind of did a PhD in neuroscience and rocket science. And that was great fun. Of course, it didn't work because it was projecting high-intensity magnetic fields to cause delays in action potential conduction. And, of course, there is a cubed law of fall-off of strength of electromagnetic fields, which is why you can't project it over a long distance. But we were able to get asystolic hearts to contract in impulse magnetic fields, which had never been done before, and activate all classes of nerve fibre. So I learned a lot about neuroscience, which I, has been one of my passions ever since. Neuroscience is very different from urological surgery, though, isn't it? Well, it is, but there is a lot of neuroscience in urology because of you know the neurological dysfunction that goes along with urological conditions. One of the biggest problems with innovations isn't having the great idea, it's making it spread and making it happen. And anyone who's ever worked in the NHS might say that the NHS is a slow-moving organisation. Your role has been about getting innovation spread in the NHS and off the ground. What do you know about the organisation and its behaviour? Well, some people have likened the NHS to a super tanker. You know, it is the fifth largest employer on the planet and the largest employer of professionals on the planet. So it is a super tanker in one way. And, and people say you've got a pretty hard job because you've got to try and turn a super tanker around. And I understand that analogy and get it. But on the other hand, if you were to say, I want to innovate at scale in healthcare, the NHS is the largest single healthcare system on the planet. So there, if there is a place to innovate at scale in healthcare, the NHS is it. <laughs> and that was the challenge I was given when I came to work at NHS England seven years or so ago now on how do we take this fantastic organisation, and in, not just a fantastic organisation, I would argue probably the greatest innovation of the modern era is universal healthcare. And 73 years or so ago now, when the NHS was founded, we were the first nation to deliver universal healthcare to our whole population. And the rest of the world have followed suit since then. So the NHS itself is an incredible innovation and something we should be very proud of leading on. And anyone who knows the literature on innovation within organisations, it can be very difficult. In large corporate organisations, you look at the big tech companies and you look at um, other large corporates, how good are their internal innovation systems? And it's really varied. Very often, the solution they look at is, um, actually, why don't we just buy a, a startup or a company that's solving this area? And that's a much easier way for us to be innovative by bringing in that skill from outside. So, so when I came to NHS England and I've observed what had gone on in the United States and in, in other parts of the world, how... For example, in the USA, they have corporate entrepreneurship programs. So, so I like an, in, in clinical practice, we're really used to clinical trials. So the clinical trial is to healthcare as the startup is to the commercial world. Mm, and yes. a clinical trial is just simply 
an experimental methodology for seeing if you have an idea that works and then when it works, can you scale it across healthcare? If you look at a startup, a startup is just an experimental methodology for seeing if you've got an idea that works and then can you scale it? And that's why I think actually clinicians are quite good at being entrepreneurs. But do you know, in, in the National Health Service, we weren't embracing that. In fact, we did the opposite of support people. I recall in, must have been 2014, when uh, a junior doctor approached me who'd raised a startup funding round. And he was told by his training program director, you can be an entrepreneur or a surgeon, you cannot be both, make your choice. And so he quit. And so we were losing some of the brightest people in the NHS, and we wanted to keep them. We didn't want them going on. This was our brightest buttons that were just leaving. And we're going, well, what are we going to do for the future? How are we going to transform healthcare if all the super people are going to work in industry? So, although there are lots of super people, thank goodness, who stay in healthcare as well, I should say. But the figures from the GMC, 5% of doctors are leaving healthcare permanently each year. And at the end of your foundation years in the NHS, somewhere between 55 and 60% of doctors are taking a break increasingly long now, and many of those aren't coming back. So what can we do about transforming that? So that's when I was given the task by Sir Bruce Keogh, our former National Medical Director, of uh, coming up with a solution. And mm. the solution I described was the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. Yes, you've just made a very good case for why people who want to create startups and things like that need support from those with experience. And can you just outline a bit what sort of support you, th- you think the um, NHS scheme gives and, and other things you'd like to see for entrepreneurs? Sure. So, I mean, the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme offers a range of support. And had it have been there for me 20 or so years ago, wow, what I might have achieved. But anyway, we are now achieving with some stunning things because of those experiences that I had and because of bringing together the support of the mentoring networks around us. So we offer people a whole range of uh, educational support and networking. We have educational day and a half sessions that we call pit stops. So we bring them in every six weeks or so, or we did prior to the pandemic. During the pandemic, we bring them in virtually. And we have founder stories in the evenings where you hear from someone from the public sector, from one of our clinical entrepreneurs, and normally someone from the private sector about their career journey. And it's done in a private way because we have, it's like a failure session. Tell us what went wrong. Tell us the mistakes that you never want anyone to make again. Tell us what went right and what lessons you learned and how you've gone on to do these things. And they're some of the most popular sessions we run because it's, it's like being on the inside of a commercial confession booth mm-hmm. and you go, ah, oh, that really happens. And then you learn and you don't make that mistake yourself next time. So mm-hmm. that's um, a really helpful thing. The networking events, putting the entrepreneurs together is such an important thing to take forward. So, and they learn lots from each other from peer-to-peer learning. We have a whole range of industry days. They get allocated a commercial mentor each. And these are people from often senior executive positions in a different range of corporates, sometimes from the public sector or the NHS or the charitable sector. We have some patient mentors as well that come on the programme and come and talk to us as well on the programme about the patient's perspective 
And then a whole range of other support from connection to customers and fund this signposting to funding to take their ideas. And we have a range of international trips when I get invited abroad to speak for the Department of International Trade. Often a number of the entrepreneurs will come along with us and get to network and meet businesses internationally. And that people might understand what an accelerator is, which is a a, a sort of a concentrated sprint, if you like, normally for three or six months on a business idea. But that's very difficult to do if you're in healthcare because Mm. you've got to take three to six months off work and not many jobs would be able to give you that. You can do that on the entrepreneur scheme. And one of the things I should have said is we also offer less than part-time training. Mm. If you're in full-time training, we can't guarantee it, but we offer to support you in your application to Health Education England to say this is why we should um, uh, support you in less than full-time training. And a number of our um, entrepreneurs achieve that. So if you bring all those offerings uh, together, and, and do it in a distributed manner rather than a concentrated manner. So it's every six weeks or so. What we found is actually that works really well in the National Health Service because you can take a, an evening off and one day from work quite easily. And in the intervening time, you get to go and do laps in the NHS testing out your ideas or what in the startup world, what we call a customer validation cycle. Yeah. So we bring them in, they do this day and a half. Then they go back and do more customer validation cycle, talk to people. What do you think about this idea? Would you pay for it? What do I need to do to change it to make it better? And then they reform the not just the solution they've got, but very often the problem. We get them really get them to focus on the problem and we get them to fall out of love with their solutions and get them to fall in love with the problem that they are trying to adjust and really define that. And when you kind of bring all that suite of offerings together and so we ran the experiment and it worked and it scaled and we now have created the world's largest entrepreneurial workforce development and training program in healthcare and life sciences we have over 700 frontline nhs workers on the program in the first four years they created uh, over 240 startups raised 280 odd million pounds impacted over 30 million patients And we're now responsible for supporting and creating over 4% of the UK life science industry from scratch with no major funding from NHS England. This is all money that's been raised for the companies from grants or private sector investment and support. Wow, amazing. I know. (laughs) It just goes to show, you know, most great organisations on the planet would mine the intellectual capital of their workforce for their greatest ideas because they're the person who are people who are experiencing the problem and they're the people who are likely to be able to highlight the answers and we're now giving them the skills, knowledge and experience to help identify the problems, develop solutions and then grow and scale those solutions And we've got some globally leading examples on the programme of people who have done just that and are transforming healthcare right across our planet. Hmm. Do you want to give any specific examples? Oh, so you're asking me to pick, it's like asking me to pick my favourite child. They are all amazing (laughs) and they come from so many different sectors. So if you were looking at it from a commercial success point of view, you look at Jean Neem, one of the co-founders of Touch Surgery, and they exited to Medtronic just over a year ago now for an undisclosed amount, a number of hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and they made fantastic advances in democratising access to surgical education and training through their touch surgery platform. 
but actually made quite a lot of discoveries in computer vision and robotic surgery. And I think that's why Medtronic were really interested in them. They announced recently their first operation with their new robot, the Hugo system. You could pick Nadine Hashash-Haram, who is the founder of Proximy, who are doing amazing work across the world. Have you seen the pop-up Holodoc on Star Trek? In the United States, it's the stuff of science fiction and Hollywood films. In the National Health Service, it is this found up by a consultant plastic surgeon now at St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, and her startup's called Proximy. And essentially, it can take an image of a surgeon from anywhere. So I could be sitting in my office and I could be literally beamed live into an operating theatre to look at um, virtually scrub into something with virtual retractors or you can even have your gloved hand come onto the screen in front of the surgeons and show them where to make the cut. They've used this in training plastic surgeons, in so general plastic surgeons in Peru who weren't specialists in cleft palate surgery, so teams from the United States and England have trained them to become specialist cleft palate surgeons just by this kind of hollow doc type mm. um, thing. Amazing. But also we've taken trauma surgeons into specialist trauma surgeons into war zones like Syria to help and also into Camp Bastion in Afghanistan um, to take things forward. So examples like workforce development things, so amazing, what the wonderful Hina Rafiq and Generation Medics a passionate, committed A&E doctor from Oxford who wanted to widen access to surgical careers. So I set up this social enterprise, Generation Medics, and she goes into schools. I think I'm going to get the number wrong. Hina will have a go at me. I want to say it's over 250 different career types within the National Health Service. But many people never think of coming to work in the NHS. So she goes into schools and from five or six-year-olds who there is a lot of um, play associated with healthcare in with that, up to um, school leavers um, talking about careers and options in the NHS. Because shouldn't NHS organisations actually be anchor institutions in their local communities where they can provide a source of employment? But also when you start engaging with people to work in healthcare, their health knowledge and literacy for them and their family and direct community around them improve as well. So it it doesn't have to be a a tech company that sells to one of the largest medical device companies in the world. It could be a social enterprise. It doesn't have to be clinically facing. It could be operational. And we've got a number of things that help improve efficiencies, not just in how you recruit staff, but how you run a hospital and make sure it's optimised in um, delivering its clinical services, like MediShout, one of our entrepreneurs, Ash Carrier, which is like your help desk for everything, whether it's computer and IT problems or whether it's stock ordering or facilities help because mm-hmm. some a door is broken or a tap doesn't work or a bed needs fixing. You just register this all on the MediShout app and it gets prioritised and dealt with rapidly. But it also gives hospital managers an insight into what's working well, what's not working well. We've got this machine learning platform built in now, and they can actually predict when a piece of equipment is likely to break down before it breaks down. And they were doing this work in one of our hospitals, and they looked at ECG machines on the wards, and they made predictions. They didn't intervene, and they made predictions of which ECG machines on which wall would break down that week, and they got it right the whole way (laughs) and so now what we do is we look at when the prediction is and we take that machine out of service and make sure we service it and fix any issues so it never has to break down yeah just finally because this is a bmj innovations podcast 
I'm keen to get your view on one of our problems, <laughs> which I think we've touched on a bit, but it's that idea that in the commercial world and where startups are often op- operating, your job is to pitch a great story, something exciting, something good, something positive. And actually, to report really good science, sometimes you have to be admitting your failures as well and saying that we tried this and it didn't work. How do you think we can get those two ways of reporting and sharing to sort of talk to each other better? So I think that's a really challenging question, you know, to marry up the, you know, the scientific side of things with the commercial side of things. It is quite a grand challenge because having now worked in both sectors and understanding them, you know, the commercial world has to be driven by having a business that is sustainable because if you haven't it's not a business it's it's a hobby at best and so you do have to make money you do have to turn that over and of course you get extreme versions of that that look for the ultimate way to make money and turn that over now science shouldn't be like that and the goals of science and the ethics of it mean it should be about the exploration of the world around us and the pursuit of knowledge and trying to work our way through that. And I suppose sometimes science in a way has become a self-fulfilling kind of thing because we want to encourage new groundbreaking results and they get published in the highest impact journals and then you get bigger grants and more awards. Oh, you could argue there's some similarity there with the commercial sector and some crossover in that. And there are some wonderful things that go on in the commercial sector. I mean, just look at the work of the pharma companies in developing vaccines across the world, very often proceeding at great risk because it was the right, great commercial risk, because it was the right thing to do. They had no idea if their vaccines were going to work when you look at many of them. So I think the beauty of bridging that divide between science and medicine and the commercial world allows us to explore what's possible and how we share those stories. Now, of course, in the commercial world, you don't release all your negative findings unless you're mandated to in your reporting to the stock exchange, for example, because that might give you a, a commercial disadvantage And so there's something there about how do we provide a safe space? I'm not going to suggest I know what the answer is, although I'm always happy to talk about when things didn't go well and what I learned. But that's a fundamental value. And that's a value for under good medical practice that all doctors should be having. And, you know, the GMC and our duties of candor and how we must talk about that. So if someone's heard about this entrepreneurship programme and are interested, what do they need to do? So the, the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Programme is opening up for applications this autumn. So you can keep an eye on the NHS England um, website. We'll be announcing it there or follow me on Twitter. I'll definitely be announcing it on my uh, Twitter account. And where anyone who works in or for the NHS in some way can apply to the programme. But what's so exciting this year is um, we've developed an international partnership. So we all announced earlier in the summer the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme in Australia. We're going to be working with colleagues in Northern Ireland to do that. But we've also had discussions with uh, people in Uganda and Italy and Spain and the United States and other countries. So we'd be delighted to hear from innovators and entrepreneurs from across the world. Our educational programme is 
almost completely digital and online because of the pandemic. And we will continue a blended approach to learning as we move forward in the future. So if you've got a great idea and or have, have identified a great problem and you think you've got a way of solving it, maybe you should take a look at the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. Great pitch, great pitch. I'm investing. So just in terms of thinking what people might be interested in hearing from you, can you distill down sort of key lessons that Oof. doctors who are interested in being entrepreneurs should learn? So, so if we are going to be innovative, we have to be able to learn from when it didn't go well, learn from failure. So I've learned a lot of lessons for failures. I, I you know, people sometimes say, wow, you've had so many successes. It's just incredible what you've done. And I'm going more than 10 times the number of failures sit behind those enormous commercial lessons. So I, first and foremost, I would say be true to yourself in what you do and what your values are. Be uh, honest, have the highest integrity, because my experience, as long as you can keep standing and keep going, eventually you will come through and it will work out. Whereas those people who don't have those values, in my experiences, eventually it all comes tumbling down around them. And in the commercial world, I've seen that time after time. So I think be true to yourself and and try and find people who share your vision and your dream along the way. Yeah. I'll just say thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to come and, and talk with you. Innovation is so important and I'm committed to helping drive this agenda forward in any way we can. So looking forward to supporting the BMJ Innovation Journal as much as I can. Our thanks again to Tony Young. There's a link to the Clinical Entrepreneurship Programme and some of the amazing companies and people he mentioned in the show notes. Next week, I'm talking to Patricia O'Dara about the challenges, but more the opportunities for innovators in low and middle income countries. She's got some amazing experience. If you're not bundling your innovation yet, you will be after you've heard her. So do tune in. And please help us reach more innovating ears by liking, subscribing, reviewing and sharing wherever you get the chance. BMJ Innovations is grateful to the World Innovation Summit for Health, WISH, for making this podcast series possible. It was produced and presented by me, Helen Serrana, for BMJ Innovations and is editorially independent. If you have any comments or questions, do get in touch via social media or info.innovations at bmj.com. Goodbye.